Welcome to episode 363 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I am Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. The sky comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We got a new topic on this episode. We do. It's the beginning of the end. It's the beginning. <laughs> That was really good. Cut to like REM. That was fantastic. Yes, we're talking about not the beginning or the end state, but that intermediate state. Yes. And if that for some reason breeds some kind of confusion in your ears or makes you ask, what are these guys talking about? We're going to get to that on this episode. But before we do, let's affirm, let's deny, let's start off right. I'm going to go with dealer's choice on this. Where do you want to start? I'll start with my affirmation. So I don't know, maybe I'm just like super vain, but I feel like all my affirmations these days are related to like the way I dress or whatever. But I went, I went and got my beard trimmed at the barbershop for the first time ever in my life. And it was an amazing experience. So if you are a listener who happens to grow facial hair and you are trying to cultivate a good, big, glorious beard, I would definitely affirm uh, maybe periodically going to an actual barbershop and having the, someone who knows what they're doing shape and trim your beard. I can tell you like the way that I've been doing it, it's probably all wrong. And I can see that I look a lot better when I have someone who knows what they're doing, do it. So that's my affirmation. Oh, wait, so I have to ask, are you saying that like this is the first time ever, not just like the first time in a while, but the first time ever you've had somebody that's not you cut your beard? Correct. Yes. The first time I've ever had someone who's not me cut my beard. I love it. I love it. So I'm with you on this. I've had both good and bad experiences. So I kind of, I would say, extend that affirmation. You want to, so the best thing in the world, if you're a dude and you have facial hair, like you're saying, so I'm so sorry, sisters, like this is going to alienate for a second, <laughs> is finding that place, researching and finding a qualified person to do this. So yes. I've gone to a place where they're like, we do beards. Like that's part of what we do. And you go and you'll, you're totally right. You'll have a different experience. They're probably going to, let's just make it weird, massage your face, like do the whole business of like what it means to trim it, have like an eye towards it, use several different types of clippers. Yeah. And some people are saying, is really all of that necessary? It does make a difference. Like if you're looking for a shaped different outcome. I've also though, on the other hand, I'll never forget this. I went to a traditional barbershop. I was with my wife. I needed a haircut. And I said, could you also do the beard? And the woman said to me, yeah, I could do that. And I thought, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> this is not right. And it wasn't great. Now, again, there are lots of skilled barbers out there. But the beard work is a different animal. So it might yes. sound extreme to say, how could this be an affirmation? Like anybody who can cut hair could also cut facial hair. It is like a totally different animal. So there is nothing like it. Oftentimes, it's, it's not inexpensive. But it is a unique experience yeah. and they'll make it look good. And just like you want to have somebody cut your hair because they know what they're doing on the top of your head. The same is true for the beard. If that's your thing. Yeah. Well, and there's certain things like when you're trimming your beard that you can't quite do the same way if you're trimming your beard, just because like you can't see your beard from all angles at the same time. So like, there's something to be said about someone else doing it. There's, there's a metaphor in here somewhere, I think for like having, your, and having your theology, reviewable by the outside parties. But yeah. And like, it's really funny too, because I think part of the, part of the barbershop experience, I've, I'm one of those people that when I, I mean, I don't have hair anymore. And when I did have hair, I just went to like super cuts or great clips or whatever, like your regional haircutting chain is the, like the actual barbershop experience is very different where like you get usually a guy, like a barbershop traditionally is a man who's cutting your hair. And like the way that conversation happens during those haircuts and beard trims is also very interesting. I sat down and the guy's like, so what are you looking, what are you looking for? And I said, well, have you ever heard of Matt Walsh? And he's like, uh, what do you mean? I was like, Matt Walsh, he's a, he's a podcaster. Like he's got like a really nice masculine beard. That's kind of what I'm going for. And he, he leaned over close and he goes, don't tell anybody but I quite like Matt Walsh. <laughs> and he's like, you got to be careful who you say that around in this area. And he's right. Like you can't go just talking about how much you like Matt Walsh in the upper Valley here. Somebody will try to cancel you. But yeah, it was a good experience. Dude, dude's a Christian. He's got his own little barbershop. He takes one person at a time. Uh, I'm not quite sure how he pays the bills that way. Uh, he doesn't charge that much, 
but uh, yeah, it was a good time. So I definitely recommend it. Um, you know, it's not the kind of thing you have to go do every week. Um, you know, sometimes I think like you, you get it shaped right before like a, an event or something, and then you can kind of maintain it. And then you just need to go back and kind of have it trimmed up again if you want to do it this way. But yeah, it was good. It was a good experience. I like that. We've been talking about this before, even though we both have beards. It's true. I, we're certainly pro beards. For me, that's mainly just a function of laziness. Yeah. And I think much sometimes to my wife's chagrin, my beard reaches an untenable length. Yeah, and like then I just like keep going. We're gonna start calling you Gandalf the Gray here pretty quick. <laughs> wizard level. Listen, a beard arrives precisely at the time it is. <laughs> well played, my friend. Well played. What about you? What are you affirming today? I like this idea of like the simple affirmation, or maybe the like we speak about the simplicity of God. Now that's a, a, a absolutely glorious and beautiful thing, and how complexity sometimes is unnecessary, at least in certain realms. I'm just going to go with a, a simple affirmation. You've inspired me. And that is I'm affirming with the way in which God has created the world such that we have seasons yeah. for the most part of where, wherever we live. It struck me recently that there was God was like under no obligation to create these different varieties of the weather and the patterns of the weather and everything that comes along with them. And as at least in the Northern Hemisphere here, we're entering a kind of autumn season. I just love that there's variety and that with each of those things, I think if you asked any person, they would say, well, there's things that they like and their challenges that they experience in each of those seasons, but how lovely that there's diversity in the weather. We just take that as a prerequisite, but there was no need for it to be that way. So I think it's just great. We get snowfall, at least where I live. We get changing leaves. We get high temperatures and low temperatures. We get sun and we get shade and we get clouds. And all of those things show like this amazing creative brilliance of God to bring to bear his character and his depth just in the environment that we experience as we go about our daily, sometimes mundane lives. Yeah. Yeah. Cut cut to all of our listeners in Southern California that are really confused right now because they don't have changing seasons. That's on them. Yeah. I mean, it'd be not, I guess it'd be kind of nice if like it was 68 and sunny all the time, but it's nice to have changing, changing seasons for me right now. The fact that we're getting like, they're calling it second summer right now. It, it's showing me how much I actually do appreciate the change in seasons yeah, because sure. there's like the perpetual question in, it's probably the same, although I think you guys have central air. So it's not as much of a question for you. We have like a window air conditioner that we have to take in and put out depending on the season. And it's always like the perpetual question of like, when do you take the window unit out? Cause once you take it out, you're not putting it back in. It doesn't matter how hot it gets. And this year we chose poorly. So, I mean, we couldn't have known that it was going to get, going to get back up to summer weather, but yeah, I like it. I I'm a big fan of the changing seasons and you know, around here, the big thing is the leaves, like the leaves changing is the big signal of a difference. Right. And it just feels like they just popped this last couple, like last couple days, really. It was like, where's the leaves? And then they were just all of a sudden beautiful and brilliant everywhere. I wish I could remember it because this actually maybe would have been an even better affirmation, but everybody can just Google it. The interwebs are your friend with searches. There is a site that tracks and tries to log for you, projects even, when the peak time of yeah. lease season is across the United States, which of course is mainly on like the Eastern seaboard. Just, I, I can't remember the site. I came across it recently. You can go Google that for yourselves. But again, what a remarkable thing. I, I forget who it was, which poet has said that like in autumn, every leaf is a flower. I always loved that description of the way. And again, God was under no particular obligation to make it this way. And then he does. And then talk about like just getting spiritual with this. Like the fact that that beauty only comes through death is just yeah. an amazing thing. So yes, I'm totally pro season. And I will say this, I have some in-laws that live in California. And though there is like, a, I would say like less volatility to their seasons. The seasons yeah. exist, of course, but the less volatility. When they come out this way, one of the things they remark about is they want to see that volatility. They want to see rain. Yeah. They want to experience it. They want to see temperature changes and swings. And I think it's because we're drawn to some kind of like diversity, even in the environment in which we live. So it's just a lovely thing that God does this for us. Like uh, what a good God that we have. Yeah. And he runs himself into the environment in which we live. And that's all it is. A simple affirmation born from just a tiny bit of gratitude for the way in which the weather changes. So let's, let's switch it up. It's negative time. What are you denying against? So I don't want to get into specific issues here, but just in general, I'm denying American politics. I think we've had this oh, denial before. 
Uh, right now, the biggest thing is we can't seem to get the house together to have a leader and without a leader or speaker of the house is what it's called in the United States. Uh, we can't do anything. And, and I, you know, I'm not commenting on whether it was Speaker McCarthy, who's no longer Speaker McCarthy, but whether his making a deal with the Democrats to get the budget through or whatever it was, whether that's right or wrong is is sort of not particularly relevant to this. The fact that we have such a deadlocked um, politic right now, and I've said this before, like this is actually a feature of the system. And so this is, it doesn't feel like it, but this is the system working the way it's supposed to. We have a deeply divided country and part of part of the way that our political system works is that when our country is divided, it locks up the system so that one party can't just make or one group can't just make a bunch of decisions and change a bunch of things that half of the country wouldn't agree with. But this is where it's affecting me the most, I think. Uh, the we, We've affirmed in the past this thing called Fat Bear Week, if you recall. Apparently, Fat Bear Week is in jeopardy because the funding for the National Park Service is on hold if the government shuts down, uh, which we're coming up on another deadline for this. So I think for now, Fat Bear Week is safe, but you never know. We might not get to see those glorious fat bears. Yeah, it's true. AJ's obviously upset about that as well. Yeah, he's very upset about it. He's not. Listeners, listeners heard that. He was waving to me just now. <laughs> I'm I'm with you. I'm trying to shift back into podcaster mode, having seen my really adorable nephew sitting on Tony's lap. I'll say this. Uh, let me just make this my denial as well. I didn't expect to go this route, but I'm totally with you. So the feature is also the bug with this. So this right. idea of like decentralized power, constant checks and balances is totally chill. But of course, those things can be abused when they are done so without like equal measure or moderation. So I'm with you. And one of the things that I would like echo is the strangeness of American politics, where really this whole thing with McCarthy was about the debt ceiling, which is that the U.S. basically has a self-imposed credit card limit on right. its borrow. And this is something they've decided to do. And then that means, of course, that even as it gets bigger and the U.S. government, the United States uh, economy can actually afford to borrow more because their income is stronger. All the things they're producing is a, to a greater degree, and that results in greater income, that they still always have to raise it. It would be like, I don't know, if you doubled your salary, you would go back to your bank and say, can I have a little bit more of a line of credit on my credit card? Because you know that I'll pay it back every time that I actually use it to purchase something. It's a weird thing because the U.S. government passes a budget knowing that they will borrow, like many other households, hopefully in a responsibly, responsible way. And yet at the same time, then has this weird constraint that says, oh, we'll pass the budget. Totally cool. We have services and things we're going to minister. We need, we have bills we need to pay. And then almost as if surprised being like, oh, wait a second, we don't have a limit high enough to fulfill that budget. So this is like self-imposed misery in lots of ways. And unfortunately, it becomes overtly political to your point. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where, like, I don't know that our founding fathers intended our country. I said I wasn't going to get into the issues. Then, of course, here I get directly into the issues. But here we go. I don't know that our founding fathers intended for the government to operate at a deficit. But I think you're right, too. Any any entity of a sufficiently large size, like like corporation or, or you know, body of individuals, like an organization, a lot of times they do plan on operating with debt as part of the like spending model. Um, that could be responsible, but that has to have a certain level of like backing from everyone involved. And I, I'm not going to get into it cause it would become the show, but we certainly are seeing the government has, has not gotten on, on the same page at this point about how much debt we're going to use and, and what ways we're going to use it. Um, so yeah, I just think it's a bug. It's a feature. It's certainly obnoxious. I'm sick of hearing about it. I mean, I think even like the idea that in order to just elect an, a, a speaker on the most recent round, they had to like put this nuclear option in where anyone could basically vote to vacate the speaker seat with just a single motion, which is, is crazy. So yeah, I just, American politics is in a weird spot. It'll come back around. I mean, this th kind of stuff is cyclical. There hasn't, as far as I know, there hasn't quite been this volatile of a situation in history. I know we've never, we've never vacated, we've never fired the Speaker of the House in the middle of a term before. 
Um, there's been times where the speaker has left or resigned or, or whatever, but we've never voted a speaker out. And I say we, I mean like the Congress. Um, we've never voted a speaker out this way. So it's interesting. It's an interesting time to to be watching American politics and to see what's going on. But yeah, I'm just I'm just really mostly I'm just sick of hearing about it. It's not even an election year and all that's all that's dominating my entire news podcast uh, ecosystem is stuff about the the speaker of the house and what's going on. That's right. That election is coming next year for those of us in the US. So that's true. There's more wildness to come. I'm with you. I think that people already there's just experiencing this kind of political fatigue. And I think for the average person, when they're this nervous about is the financial ramifications of this, or it seems so dire. I would encourage anybody to go back and read some of the financial history of probably their own country, and they'll find that what we have is a good God who carries us. That there's so many incredible situations in which, like through time, there's been always the sense that we're on the precipice, that everything is about to fail, and it doesn't. And so we're really coming to this place of understanding that God controls all things, that the grand arc of history, redemptive history is under his hand, that he is the sovereign king. And so he holds the nations in derision. He balances them as a dust on the scales. And that quite honestly leads us into this kind of culmination of this whole theological series, which has been, have we actually kept track of the number of episodes from the beginning when we endeavored with like great earnestness earnestness and officially to start this like theology series. Yeah. I don't I haven't gone back and counted by it. No, it's over a hundred, which means I, I think it's over a hundred and four, which means we've been doing this for at least two years now. And we've had some interruptions and things with with vacation and stuff. So it's been quite a bit. Ironically, uh my Lagos Bible software happens to be open to the same chapter we were looking at last week or part yeah. of it. And the first thing that came to my eye when I opened it up was, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. And I'm like, I'm sure glad I'm not a dispensationalist because I'd be like, that is what's happening right now. That's inflation right there. We love you, dispensationalists. Please don't write me your letters. It's just a joke. It's totally fine. Uh, No, listen, like preterist inflation is a real thing. You know, like Josh was talking about what was about to happen, what was going to happen. Yeah. It was meaningful to his listeners. But besides uh, both of us just like opening that bomb up, and just saying, we're going to move, move on. I, I say that as like an introduction because if you're wondering why I've been talking about all this stuff for so long, it's because we did endeavor to try to cover like at least in our own way, the Reformed yeah. Brotherhood kind of way, like the full breadth and scope of these theological topics. But you know, listen, not even Ken Burns has anything on us. We just keep going. We're trying to spend time on all this stuff and we're coming to the end of all things. But I like what we're starting on this because maybe we're not starting in the place where others would expect. And even you, Tony, like you gave kind of this admonishment. I, I called it admonishment last time, which was like, listen, everybody, everybody get chill, get easy. We're not going to go after eschatology in the same way that yeah. a lot of people do and throw a lot of rattle debates and like get everybody fired up so that we get a lot of heat and not so much light. But I appreciate that what we wanted, where we wanted to start with this uh, is idea of the intermediate state, which I think is the right way to start because, because everybody, and I think about this a lot because my father is a pastor, everybody has to deal with death, death and the inevitable questions that come with it. Like the very nature of death just raises difficult questions. It's not uncommon, of course, for children to be offered these well-intended words of comfort after the death of a family member or someone they have known. And we have to say things like, well, grandma is in heaven. But the question is, what do we mean by that? And, and does yeah. the average Christian, does the Christian that is trying to follow closely at the Lord Jesus Christ, are they saying the things that comport with scripture and not just adding like words of comfort? And so usually a lot of this gets covered, this idea of like what happens to people when they die. That is often explored, but frequently, in my opinion, misunderstood aspect of Christian theology. And we usually cover under this heading of, quote unquote, the intermediate state. So that's where we're starting, because the beginning of the end is really to explore the end of human existence in the temporal space. And before we get to all the eschatological stuff, which of course we've already talked about by way of its impounding in all of theology, I think it's fair to say, let's get practical and talk about what it means when people die. And thus we find ourselves at the intermediate state. Yes. Yeah. And 
You know, I don't think it's been any secret that we are, uh, we consider ourselves to be confessionally minded reformed Christians. Um, and throughout this broader series, we've basically followed the ordering of the Westminster confession. So I'm going to go to chapter 32 of the Westminster, uh, Westminster confession. And it is titled of the state of men after death and the resurrection of the dead. So sometimes Sometimes the the distinction, you know, what we're calling the intermediate state, and then we'll, we'll get into in the coming weeks of kind of like the end of this age and the renewal of this or the renewal of all things into the coming age. Um, sometimes the distinction is between like personal eschatology and I don't know cosmic eschatology or something like right. that. Basically, what we're talking about this week is what happens to individuals. Uh, you know what what's the end state of individuals and we'll talk about the end state of individuals you know prior to the second coming of Christ and then we'll we'll talk about the end state of individuals after the incarnate or after the coming of Christ the second coming of Christ and so i want to read from chapter 32 here because i think the the westminster confession and the associated english confessions the savoy declaration the london baptist confession um, and then, of course, the Belgic Confession, the Reformed Confessions are super clear on this. And this is this is part of why I think that the Reformed Confessions are so valuable. Of course, the Reformed Confessions contain Reformed distinctives, right? But for the most part, there's not a ton in most of the Reformed Confession that a Lutheran or a, uh, you know, an Anglican, there's not a lot in any of these confessions that doesn't constitute general Christianity, right? So I want to read this because there's really nothing, uh, there's nothing that a pro- most Protestants who are staying close to the scriptures um, and concerned to stay close to the scriptures, there's nothing in here that they would disagree with. So starting with section one, it says, the bodies of men after death return to dust, see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. Beside these two places, the souls uh, for souls separated from the bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. Uh, Section two, at the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but shall be changed. And all of the dead shall be raised up and with the selfsame body and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united to their souls forever. Section three, the bodies of the unjust shall by the power of Christ be raised to dishonor the bodies of the just by his spirit unto honor and be made conformable to his own glorious body. So we're really only talking about what's contained in that first section, but I think that with a with a theology here, with a doctrine like this, you have to kind of see the whole picture. So basically, what is being said here is that although there is this intermediate state, although there is this state that um, the souls of believers and unbelievers both have this intermediate state after death prior to the eternal state, that is a, um, it's a straight line from the immediate intermediate state to the final state, right? So um, there are lots of theologies uh, which would postulate some sort of like intermediate state that doesn't necessarily have a direct connection to the final state, right? right. So, so theologies like theologies of soul sleep, which is not exclusively a Jehovah's Witness doctrine, but is most in our day is most well known as a Jehovah's Witness doctrine, where a person who dies, their souls are not conscious. So they don't experience anything. Um, some, some, I've heard some Jehovah's Witnesses say that the soul actually stays with the body and is dormant the same way and in the same location that the body is. So Jehovah's Witness theology, which is not a Christian theology by any stretch of the imagination, would say that there is there is no real intermediate state. Like there's there's an extension of this state. There's an extension of the state now, except it's not a conscious extension of the state. The soul still exists. The body still exists in some sense. And, and those two things are dormant until the resurrection, until the judgment. A Christian theology, although there are some Orthodox Christians who would postulate something like a soul sleep, right. by and large, a Christian theology... Uh, of personal eschatology 
has this idea of this intermediate conscious state that is a mirror of and a reflection of the eternal state. But the big thing is, and the difference between something like Protestant theology and Roman Catholic theology or Eastern Orthodox theology, although those two things are not the same in this area, um, is that the the intermediate state in Protestant theology is simply just a, almost like a preview of the eternal state, right? So, uh, so those who are united to Christ go to be with Christ in his glorious, gracious presence, right? In the presence of the father, those who are separated from Christ or not united to Christ or in Adam, they go to the place that those who are in, in Adam do, they go to the place of punishment, to the place of torment. Um, but this is a spiritual, the, the intermediate state is a spiritual state. That's that's a big important piece for us to land on this. That's one of those things where we we continually say when we talk about what it means to be a Christian that it's like the ninety and ten percent, like that iceberg being only ten percent visible. That right. the ninety percent, the spiritual reality that forms around us, that is who we are, is in fact the center of gravity of who we are. And so it, it shouldn't come as a surprise that when we speak about this intermediate states, that before there's reunification with the body. That the spiritual part of who you are, the real part of who you are, in many ways, the soul itself goes to be with the Lord. And we're drawing from lots of scripture on this. There's lots of breadcrumbs, if not more explicit kind of instruction on this. The one that I always go to is 2 Corinthians 5. So this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, beginning of verse 6. Therefore, being always, always of good courage. And why? Knowing that while we are at home in the body... We are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. That's the current state of affairs. However, we are of good courage, then he says this, I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. So while that is just a couple of sentences there, he's making like this clear line, like you said, between this idea that Christian theology states from its very beginning that there is an immediacy in which death means the soul being with God, present in conscience, aware of all that stuff. Right. So this intermediate state is basically the time period between a believer's death and then their immediate entrance into the presence of the Lord and the resurrection of the body at the time of Christ's return. Yeah. So when Jesus raises the dead on the last day, disembodied souls are reunited with their bodies, made imperishable as the preparation to dwell for all eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. But I like what you said. It's kind of like an appetizer of the whole thing. It is like that Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit rather, sign sealing, delivering in this real way that when you die temporally, that your soul immediately and consciously goes to be with the Father in a way in which the soul will be able to acknowledge and understand and know. And that's like a real quantity. Though again, for us in the temporal space, the spiritual world remains the thing that is unseen, that we apprehend totally by faith. So I think what's interesting is like you, you already beat me to the punch as usual talking about like, I think I, I thought we were going to endeavor in this conversation. There'd be a couple of misunderstandings that would be helpful to like tease out. And of course you already like blew at least one of them <laughs> away. Uh, one is that there's this idea of like soul sleep. You're not conscious. Like you just don't know you die. And then there's like all this, this like vacant time. There's this big gap kind of in the same way, like you're reading a book at night and you fall asleep and then you wake up in the morning with the book on your chest. You're like, what happened between then now and then? And it's just all gone for you. Uh, the second thing, which I think is also easy for people to understand. And I think you've often heard is that there's some kind of time for sinful humans to be purged right. of the presence of any remaining indwelling sin. This also is like low hanging fruit is an error. This idea of that there's purgatory that the chief aim of this time between or in the intermediate state is that somehow you can make yourself better. And in that way, either by God's help or through your own or through the help of others, that you can somehow achieve some kind of standard that would allow you to receive the full graciousness, the full merits of the proper eternal state. But I want to trigger some people and go to what I think is a third misunderstanding. Oh, here we go. The one that I think is like maybe the most common view of modern America. And that is, to confuse the intermediate state, like this disembodied existence, with the eternal state. Yeah. So that there's no expectation of the resurrection of the body as the Bible clearly teaches. Like if you go back to 1 Corinthians 15. So what I mean by that is in this view, death kind of like liberates the soul or like the already pure portion of the body from yeah. the sinful body. And since there's no resurrection from the dead, people exist after death as this like kind of conscious, invisible spirits. 
So like many people, including like some Christians, even believe that these spirits are present with us in this life. Yeah. Offering us like solace or consolation in moments of trial or when we grieve for them and they like feel their presence. That That is not what the Bible teaches. It's certainly not what the reform perspective teaches. Yeah. Yeah. And I would add, you know, I would add before we come back to that, because I think that that's a good, that's a good place for us to camp out for a little while. But I would add a fourth uh, error that actually is making somewhat of a comeback within reform circles. Um, and, and it's sort of a niche view, but this idea that that the, the intermediate state was radically different before the resurrection of Christ than it is now. Oh, so this, right. this has been, um, it's been a view that's been in the in the church in one form or another since the earliest days of the church, right? This is actually a, a fairly common view in Eastern Orthodoxy, but it's coming back around in reform circles, particularly through the work of someone like Sam Renahan, who wrote this Crux, Moors, and Fairy book that we talked about a little while ago. And it's this idea that prior to the death of and resurrection of Christ, there was this uh, sort of holding tank that all all spirits went to. I've got a, a little one who wants to join the podcast again. <laughs> He's just chomping at the bit. We're going to have to get, we can't call it the reformed kid cast. Cause I think Tanner and Les copywrote that. We'll have to call it like something else. But he's just chomping at the bit to get on the mics. Hey, buddy. Listen, like, Daddy's, like, uh, Daddy's trying father, to do a like podcast son. here. He wants, he wants Can you say hello? Hi. Hi. Yeah, people <laughs> heard you last week. They liked it. We'll have to do like a catechism cast or something when he starts learning the catechism. Really, he just wants to chomp on the microphone, I think. That's fair. I've been there. That's yeah. basically one of my excitements every week to sit in front. Just to see what he's going to do. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I meant that I also want to chop at a microphone. It's oh, just too tempting. It's true. All right, buddy. You got to go with mommy now. Here you go. Ugh. He's getting big. He's going to start screaming any second because he's just fussy. Anywho, uh, what I was saying is it's been made popular and it's kind of making the rounds again by Sam Renahan's Crux, Moors, and Fairy. Um, and it's this idea that that prior to the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, there was sort of this holding tank for the souls of all people. And that right. Christ then went into, into Hades, he descended in, in this conception, it's actually like physically into the lower portions of the earth and retrieved those souls of the righteous from this place and then brought them into paradise. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to cast aspersions on Sam Renahan. There's a lot of things that Sam Renahan does very good. Um, you know, I, I obviously am not a 1689 Baptist, but there's nobody that knows 1689 federalism. And has I think has done more work, maybe other than his dad, has done more work to sort of retrieve 1689 federal theology from kind of the garbage heap of history, for lack of a better way to turn. So I have a lot of respect for him, but I, he is so wrong on this, and I don't understand how it comports with his his own confession, the 1689. So I, I don't I don't know that we want to get into that too much. We maybe will come back to that on a future episode. We can maybe ask, um, see if we could get someone to come on who holds that view and have a conversation about it. But the confession summarizing the scripture is really clear that the scripture doesn't acknowledge any other place besides right, these two exactly. places. And, and there's no room, um, in my opinion, there's no room in the Bible for this kind of like radical change in the intermediate state following the resurrection of Christ. It just suddenly something is very different than it was before. That just doesn't really work. It doesn't. I, I think that's helpful. It's like, and, and you have to take our word for it. Like that's a classic reading rainbow line. There's so much out there, especially with respect to like the divines and all these creeds that we've been talking about, the confessions themselves. They're all coming to the same place. They're not using exactly the same language, but the center of it is all the same. You already quoted from, and this is really wild to me because again, you can kind of take this like broad survey of them. You already spoke about the Westminster, but here's what the Heidelberg Catechism says that not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up with Christ as its head but also that this, my body raised by the power of Christ shall again be united with my soul and made like the glorious body of Christ. Or you can go to the second Helvetic confession, which says we believe that the faithful after bodily death go directly to Christ. So I think what we ought to emphasize here is that it is binary. There's no like this weird, like the intermediate state is not like you transcend two different worlds. It just means like between the time that you die and that your body is reunited with your soul, which by the way, we could talk about all of like Greek Aristotelian like philosophy, this idea that like 
God values the physical state of things that he created and that the end state is to bring all those things together in constant uh, of uh, harmony. I was distracted again. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> again, you guys can't see this, but my nephew is sitting on Tony's lap again. He's just super adorable. And he so badly wants to podcast. He, he wants his own mic. And he's... <laughs> He's always so graciously making eyes at me or giving me a signal. So because of this, we find that we ought to be uncompromising in what it means when somebody dies. That's anybody who dies. And especially when a Christian dies, understanding what it means that their soul goes immediately to be with Christ. And this isn't like some kind of like JV version of death. Like it is to be with Christ is to have your soul the part of you, the essential nature of your being, to be with God the Father, and yet to know that that while it is a the, not the final state, it is a beautiful blessing that we all could be. <laughs> this is live podcasting, folks. Unedited, unedited. You're hearing every word of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're you're right, and there there's so much. Um, I guess what I struggle with about this is the Bible seems really clear to me and I don't fully understand why, why these alternative views crop up. Um, and, and you know, let, let's spend a little bit of time talking about the whole purgatory thing. Cause that's kind of like okay. the biggest error that we run into in Christian. I'm kind of doing air quotes here, but like Christian theology, broadly speaking. And there are some there are some Protestants. It has become somewhat vogue in in recent days to hold to a kind of um, purgatory among Protestant Christians. And what we often see is is people get sort of um, enamored with the logic of this because there is a sort of uh, there's a sort of straightforward logic to the concept of purgatory. So broadly speaking, the idea of purgatory is um, the idea that when a when a Christian dies, right, and we're talking about Christians, we're not purgatory um, to maybe dispel uh, a false view. Purgatory is not the view that you can somehow merit salvation after death; that like you can work off damnation. Purgatory is the view that Christians and really all Christians, um, almost all Christians, they're not quite ready for heaven yet when they get when right. they die. And so there's this process after death that depending on who you ask and what tradition you're asking, there's this process after death to kind of finish the preparation for heaven. And so they draw from passages like in, in Hebrews, which says that, you know, nothing, nothing unholy will enter God's presence. Um, This concept that God cannot admit any, anything sinful to his presence. And so the logic is like, well, very few people are perfectly holy when they die. And so there has to be some sort of process that happens after death that sort of finishes that process. The The problem with that, and this is going to sound like a snarky response, but the problem with that is that there is absolutely no biblical justification for it. It's, right. it's this view that on the surface sounds and feels very, um, it, it actually sounds very biblical because it is resting on some of these premises but it kind of synthesizes these various premises um, in ways that just doesn't really work. And so, I, I mean, have you have you encountered um, either Protestants or have you had interactions with with Roman Catholics that want to argue for for purgatory? Yeah, I mean, uh, for sure, mainly because, like you said, like there's a winsome nature to the argument because it presupposes that you have this high view of God as holy. Yeah, but what it discounts then. It's like that view assumes that the merits of Jesus Christ alone, like his life, obedience, his death for our sins, cannot render a believer sufficiently holy to enter heaven upon death. And when when you look at it in that light, and I've had some great conversations with uh, some some Catholic friends, we, we enter a challenge there because I think like the challenge really is what you're saying as a result of that, like the downstream effect or like the second, third domino to fall is you're basically saying that what Jesus Christ accomplished was not sufficient in some other period of time testing or training or like, you know, like cut to like the, the Rocky montage is necessary for the spiritual soul, like the soul to come into God's presence. 
well, where do we get that in the scriptures? Like, where, where's this sense that like what Jesus did was like good enough for certain things, but not all the things. And so if he's called his people, those called people stuff to go through some time of like trial and testing that proves that they have entered into a sufficient and superior state of holiness. When what we find in like Romans is like, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ yeah, Jesus. Right on. It, it seems like very clear. I think what's hard is that we mistake holiness as some kind of achievement still, instead of like the presence of God coming into our lives, transforming us and allowing us not just to have amnesty, but to receive as like Luther was a cut to the Lutherans, like Lutherans say like, this is the great exchange. And the great exchange is an exchange of completion. That's immutable in that sense that what God makes holy is forever. Holy. When God draws close, he does all the verbs. He establishes it. And therefore like, this is just like totally nonsense because it's, it's not necessary. And besides the fact that we find it not in the scriptures, it's unnecessary because Jesus has made a sufficient way. Jesus has paid for all the things. Jesus in his active and passive obedience has made us holy to enter into that place. And then again, like cut to Paul being like, I called you all saints. And I didn't call you all saints because like you did enough stuff or because you were going to be severely tested in some kind of like weird intermediate state afterlife and therefore be found worthy of coming before Christ and standing in the heavenly realm. But because God has done it all and what God does, he does completely. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think, you know, question, uh, what is it? Question 37 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I think is really helpful for us. Um, And we, we probably don't have time to look at all of the different scripture references that are associated with it. But one of the things that I encourage, you know, periodically I'll get an email or a telegram message or I don't know, smoke signal from somebody who is struggling with a almost like a debating point or a, a question that's being pra- raised to them from a sort of a hostile witness, right? Or so in this case, it'd be like a Roman Catholic who's trying to challenge the Protestant view of things. So many times, if you just go to the Westminster Shorter Catechism and find the relevant questions and then look at the passages that are presented as the, the substantiation for the position. So many times it's just really transparent and obvious that this is what the Bible teaches. That's the strength, I think, of the, the Westminster uh, catechisms and their proof texts is they really do make the answer. The biblical justification is just when you look at it with a, with a relatively open mind, it's just an obvious solution. And here's a question 37 says, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The answer is the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. What the, what the doctrine of purgatory does um, is it denies that Christ has the ability to make a person holy upon right. their death, right? It exactly. denies. And, and I don't think I'm saying it too strongly to say that it done it denies this right yes it's it's not that they're saying christ doesn't do this if they were saying christ chose not to make someone holy upon death and instead chose to have this sort of like ongoing post-mortem sanctification process which is really what purgatory is like post-mortem sanctification if they were saying that christ or that god chose this process I don't, I, I don't wouldn't agree with them, but I think I probably wouldn't be quite as offended by the doctrine if they were saying this was a choice that God made. But what they're saying is that there's something ontological. There's something necessary in like the logical sense. There's something necessary that prevents God from accomplishing the work of sanctification and finishing the work of sanctification upon a person's right death. And that runs contrary to, to almost everything that we affirm about God. Right, we wouldn't say that God can can, in an absolute sense, could can do anything. Right, we wouldn't say that. We say there are certain things that God can't do because it violates His nature. He, he can't actualize a, a, a true contradiction. Um, you know, He can't deny who He is. All of those things are grounded in in God's nature and God's self consistency. But to say that that Christ can't instantly sanctify someone upon their death. Um, that just seems blasphemous to me. And, you know, I, I did a, a couple debate, I guess I call them like a debate log. They were dialogues, but they were sort of like debate structured dialogues. I did a couple of these on a podcast way back in the day before I was a podcaster, actually. Um, 
where I I discussed a couple different doctrines with a with a Roman Catholic. One of them was justification, and then we did one on purgatory. And this um this debater, his first name was Doug. I don't remember his last name, but this debater, kind of like his grand sweeping, um, not only are you wrong, but at the end of the day you agree with me. Kind of rhetorical flourish was he said. Well, of course you wouldn't believe that my grandmother and Hitler both went directly to heaven, you know? And I said, well, first of all, I don't know whether Hitler went to heaven or not, but the reality is what you're saying is that Christ's power is not sufficient to handle the sin of Hitler. And he kind of stopped and was like, uh, well, no, that's not what I'm saying. I said, well, what you're saying then is that in some sense, this is based on works. And he tried to deny it. He was kind of one of those like, Roman Catholics who used to be an evangelical and doesn't want to straight out come and say the reality of the Roman Catholic position because he's trying to be winsome to evangelicals. But he had to ultimately say, well, yes, ultimately my grandmother can get into heaven faster because she's a better person than Hitler was. Right. Well, I had no doubt that this dude's grandmother was a better person than Hitler. It's hard, it's hard not to be a better person than Hitler at the end of the day. But the idea that somehow being a better person than Hitler makes you more suitable for heaven. Right. That's exactly. a denial of everything that the Protestant Reformation stands for. Right. Both both on a soteriological scale but also an eschatological scale. This is about what God does in accomplishing the salvation of the saints. And it it strikes me too. You know, we talk about in reformed theology not so much in Lutheran theology because they just don't really like this kind of framework. But we talk about the the Historia Salutis, right? The actual events yes. of salvation in history. So we talk about like um, the the you know, predestination is part of the Ordo Salutis, but it's also kind of part of the Historia Salutis. We talk about like the cross, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit. These are all historical salvation things. They happen once and they happen once and for everyone. And they don't happen in a certain sense. They don't happen directly to anyone. They happen for everyone, but they don't happen to anyone except to Christ. Then we talk about the ordo salutis, which is the application of that redemption to each individual. In a real sense, personal eschatology is like is like the ordo eschatology. I don't know what the Latin would be for that. I should figure that out. But it's like the order of eschatology. It's the order as is applied to each individual. Right. And then the historia eschatology. I think I might have invented those terms. So here, hereby forward, if anyone uses that, you owe me royalties. But the Historia eschatology, that's what happens for everyone, but in a certain sense doesn't really happen to anyone. It happens, it happens universally, and everybody has a different experience of it based on whether they're in Christ or not. The right. the purgatory view, I didn't really expect this to be like the purgatory episode, but I guess that's what it is. The purgatory view basically means. That the ordo salutis, which if we're being honest, the 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 order eschatology here, that's part of the ordo salutis, right? right? The 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 immediate glorification upon death is the last. It's not the last step; it's the second to last step in the ordo salutis. Well, it just in transparently is making the ordo salutis in some part dependent on me as the creature, my merit, my ability, my. My ability to pull myself up on my bootstraps, my ability to clean myself up from the mud pile, whatever whatever analogy you want to use, it's making the ordo salutis in some part dependent on me instead of entirely dependent on God. And that should be and is, but really should be offensive to anything that even resembles reform sensibilities. And it should give us pause to suspect any worldview that in some way has, as part of it, that we've earned something. And again, we ought to be suspicious because we have this penchant to want to embrace those things because it gives us credit and makes us honestly feel good. But the gospel is grounded in this incredible all that we need to be reckoned as a saint and rendered holy by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ through faith. So positionally, we're holy in our justification, while practically, of course, we grow in holiness throughout our lives until we are made fully holy in our glorification. But we can't get that stuff all twisted up. I think as well of Luke chapter 23. I, I listen to this for a second and conceive of the fact that like the gospel is something that man could not have put together. It just seems like so insane, so recklessly spendthrift. 
that this is the way like God treats uh, creation. It, it's just like mind blowing. And, and this is what we find in Luke chapter 23. Jesus is in the final hours of his death. He's being crucified. He's actively dying. He's about to give up his spirit. He is bookended by two criminals and they each have different responses to the state in which they're in, in that moment of their own death and the identity of who he is. And I'm just going to pick up in verse 40. You can read everything that precedes that because it's absolutely, of course, worth the time. But beginning of verse 40, but the other, that is the other thief answered and rebuking him, the, th- the other thief, he says, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we, re- we deserve for our deeds. But this man, that is Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, today, you shall be with me in paradise. Now, like I can't find anything that summarizes better. Everything we just talked about, except this passage, which says the promise of God is that when the Christian in particular dies, that the soul is with him immediately. Yeah. That today that happens, a clear promise. And to your point, that God does it all. That purgatory is like entirely unnecessary because what God purifies and makes holy is immutably purified and holy. And so therefore it deserves to be in the place of all holy things. And that is in the presence of God, not because of what we've done, not because of works done in righteousness, but because we somehow come with empty hands and elevate ourselves to the place of the deserving poor, but because of God's great mercy. And he exercises that mercy by the giving of his son who lives in complete obedience to the law and then dies the death that we are, the, the baptism of water and fire that we ought to have deserved for ourselves, Christ takes upon himself. And in so doing, who can debate then with God to say what you did was insufficient yeah. and that I need more time or there's more exercise or more activities needed to somehow bring me to this place of deserving rest in your presence. God says, you know, again, you, people have often heard me say before, like, what would Jesus do? Everything. And it's already done. And so like the working out of that is to understand like the style of our eschatology in that the intermediate state is to, the soul is always going someplace immediately, consciously, uh, in a sense of complete awareness. And for the Christian, the great promise is that you are separated from your body for a time. The center of who you are goes immediately to rejoice with God the Father. Like time alludes us, Tony, as you know, like we could go to Revelation 4. We could look at all these passages, speaking of the saints being present with our Lord and Savior and awaiting it still like that reunification. So there's this immediate sense of like, we're, we're of course, immediately our souls are going to be with the Lord. And yet there's this recognition recognition that our bodies are important to God. And he's going to bring them back together again in a way that's like completely glorified. And that's going to be like the jam for all of us. And yet still there's this great rejoicing that when you close your eyes for the last time, however that is, you will be with the Father. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know we we didn't get to the the I don't know the downside right we 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 didn't get to what happens to the souls of the unjust and what we'll cover that in future episodes I think probably based on this conversation the the astute listener can uh, can extrapolate but we'll we'll cover that when we get into future episodes because right. as I said earlier the 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 distinction between personal eschatology and maybe like cosmic eschatology. Uh, or the distinction between the intermediate state and the eternal state is really it's really a matter of like time frame, not necessarily a qualitative difference. So we'll we'll talk about the uh, the estate of the lost uh, in a future episode here. But I think I think you're right. Like, you know what what strikes me about the thief on the cross, at, which makes him such a good example and such a good counterexample to purgatory. The thief on the cross, be just just moments before we see yes. him in the book of Luke, was heaping scorn on the Son of God. Yes, right, exactly. he was heaping scorn on the Son of God. So it's not it's not like we have some relatively pious Jew who comes to a sudden realization that Christ is the Messiah, and was already basically a basically a Christian and just was missing this last piece. Right, we see some people a little bit like that in the book of Acts who are God fearing pagans or 
are are Jewish Christians or Jewish Jews who are not quite yet Christians and they just need a little nudge. We see some people like that in the book of Acts. The the thief on the cross is emphatically not that. He is heaping scorn on the Son of God moments before his conversion, moments before his death, right? We don't have a lot of understanding of how much time passes in these dialogues on the cross. Like it, it could have been a fair amount of time. It could have been a very short amount of time. But we're not talking about a matter of days for this thief to come to the conclusion from being a scorner to being a worshiper. We're talking about a matter of hours at the most. And so the idea that somehow this thief on the cross would have accumulated enough super erogatory, and we'll talk about that term next week, but super erogatory merit to just bypass purgatory is just laughable. And and I'm not always one to say that a counterexample disproves the the rule, but when you're talking about a universal or a nearly universal thing, which is what the Roman Catholic position on purgatory is, is that it's nearly universal that all Christians spend right. significant amount of time in purgatory. Some period of time. Right. It's it's almost, almost unheard of for someone not to spend time in purgatory for, for the Roman Catholic. Um, so much so that to even say it, say that any particular person isn't in purgatory requires some sort of special miraculous revelation. Right. It's ridiculous to then think, well, this this random, murderous, rebellious Jew who was heaping scorn on the Son of God moments or hours earlier somehow has accumulated enough uh, super arrogatory merit to just bypass all of that. It doesn't make any sense. So he he forms this perfect example. Also, uh, sorry, Lutherans, baptismal generation falls in the same category here that he he wasn't baptized. Um, you know, so all of that to say, we have clear, abundant examples in the scripture, uh, both explicit doctrinal statements. We have clear examples. We have explicit evidence and explicit testimony in scripture that those who are in Christ upon death have no time to wait to be with Christ fully. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's where when we get into sort of final eschatology or corporate eschatology, whatever we're going to end up calling it, the eternal state. What we'll see is that those who are apart from Christ, they get everything that's coming to them as soon as they die. There's no reprieve for them. There might be a little bit of an intensification in the eternal state. And in the same way, those who are in Christ, there's no waiting period. There's no waiting room. Like you you get to go be with God right away. And that's the beauty of good, true, reformed Christian personal eschatology or intermediate state eschatology. The blessings of Christ, the benefits that Christ has obtained on our behalf are communicated to us immediately upon death. A lot of those are communicated to us in life, but the ones that are are waiting for us until death, we don't wait past death to get them. We, we get Jesus right away, right? That's all of this language about the benefits that Christ gives us are really ways for us to talk about the fact that Christ is the benefit that we get. And we get Christ we talked about this uh, last week in our prayer episode, which is why it was such a good transition point. We have Christ in the full now, but subjectively, we don't see him and experience him in the full subjective sense. We have him in the objective sense completely, but we don't experience him in the subjective sense completely. And the beauty of this part of Christian theology in the Reformed Register, the Reformed Mind, is that the difference between how we experience God in the intermediate state and the difference between how we experience God in the eternal state is one of very minor degrees, very, very minor degrees, if if even that. So, some would say there is no difference at all. But if there is a difference, it's a very, very minor difference. And that's where I want people to sort of leave this episode, is we get to be with Jesus the moment we die. And that makes death, although it's right it's on. okay to be nervous and anxious and a little bit fearful. Like it, it's normal and natural and it doesn't necessarily represent some sort of like drastic lack of trust in God to be uneasy about our, our impending death, which is coming for all of us. But we don't have to be terrified by it because in a certain sense, it is this transition to blessedness, this transition to the full enjoyment of God for all eternity. That's a glorious truth. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's hopefully people feel encouraged in this. Like, it, it's not to say that dying won't be uncomfortable physically or even at times very difficult, but it is to say that on the other side of that, without waiting, 
You're not in the doctor's office room waiting finally for the doctor to show up or having to prove yourself that you go immediately to be with Jesus. And ho hopefully that should be, even as we struggle with what it means to die in this temporal space, of great comfort and encouragement. Because there's no soft stuff here, loved ones. God has done it all. Jesus conquered sin and death. He is the head crusher. And so by virtue of that fact, what he does, he does completely. And so he's made a way for us to be with him immediately, even as he in time reunites both the body and the soul. But it is to say that when you die, you go into a space immediately with him. I mean, that's just it. There's no way around it. Yeah. Well, Jesse, we are buttoning up against a, a time limit here. We don't usually have those, but we do this week. So I'm just going to say, Jesse, this has been such a great conversation. I'm really looking forward to what we've got coming. And until then, honor everyone. Love the brother. Love the brother.